welcome to the Wards Auto Podcast. My name is David Kiley, Senior Content Editor at Wards Auto. Well, hopefully you joined us for episode one, where we laid out some broad ideas and issues facing the auto industry as it transitions from one built around the internal combustion engine to one that is based on batteries and electrification to get us where we want to go. This is Wards Auto's first podcast ever, and we are very happy to have you along for the ride. It's our first series, a series of six episodes, which will deal with a different aspect of the transition. Today, we're talking about the battery question. So the primary battery technology used in electric cars is currently lithium ion. These batteries offer high energy density, which means they can store a lot of energy in a small and lightweight package, making them ideal for use for electric vehicles. Additionally, lithium ion batteries have a relatively long lifespan, can be recharged quickly, and are generally considered to be safe and reliable. However, other battery technologies, such as solid state batteries and lithium sulfur batteries, are being researched and developed and may become viable alternatives in the future. In this episode, we're exploring the transition from ICE vehicles to battery electric. We are going to do our best to shed light on the battery technology that's part of the process, including the efficiency of lithium ion versus lithium sulfur, solid state, and even a little bit on sodium ion. Sodium ion battery technology is being researched and developed as a potential alternative to lithium ion batteries for use in electric cars. Sodium ion batteries are similar to lithium ion batteries in many ways, but instead of using lithium ions to store and release the energy, they use sodium ions. Now, one of the advantages of sodium ion batteries is that sodium is much more abundant and less expensive than lithium which could potentially reduce the cost of electric car batteries. However, there are also some challenges that need to be overcome in order to make sodium ion batteries practical for use in electric cars. For example, sodium ion batteries currently have lower energy density and a shorter lifespan compared to lithium ion. Lithium is becoming so desirable for batteries that automakers like Ford and Mercedes are investing themselves in lithium mines becoming more vertically integrated than they have been in many years as a hedge against future lithium market prices and supply chain issues that could force battery costs higher or supply chain issues that could disrupt production. Now in a moment, when we come back, I'll be joined by Ward's Intelligence Principal Electrification Analyst, Adam Rogazino. The Wards Autos podcast is brought to you by Wards Intelligence. Wards Intelligence provides trusted data, expert insight, and reliable forecasts into the automotive and auto tech industries. Renowned for their extensive current and historical data sets, pragmatic perspective, and industry-embedded analysts, it's easy to see why over 90% of their subscribers renew each year. To learn more about their market-leading automotive intelligence capabilities, head over to wardsintelligence.informa.com. 
I'm David Kiley, and I'm joined now by Ward's Principal Battery Analyst, Adam Rogazino. Adam, how you doing? I'm great, Dave. Thanks for having me on. So, so far in the series, we have talked about the pace of transition to EVs and how OEMs are viewing it in light of the new targets by the Biden administration and the EPA and uh, how the national targets kind of fit with the California mandates and the states that follow California. And um, now we are talking about the battery technology itself. So, um, Adam, the tech uh, uh, that we're dealing with now in batteries mostly is lithium-ion. Talk to us about lithium and the industry uh, becoming kind of extra reliant on lithium and the other earth metals like cobalt, um, just as we've become reliant on oil, frankly, for internal combustion cars, is is over-reliance on lithium going to present a problem for the industry? So yes and no. I mean, lithium is right now the technology for EV batteries. There, there really isn't anything else right now. And lithium is fairly abundant. Um, although when you compare it to other elements, it may not seem so, but in terms of what the Geological Society puts it, it's 20 milligrams per kilogram of earth, which doesn't sound like a lot. But when you look at iron, it's over 500 milligrams per kilogram. So for lithium, that boils down to 0.0007% of the earth's crust, right? And, that, and where iron is more like 5%. It really is, does not sound like a lot. But the U.S. Uh, Geological Survey says there's about 98 million tons of known and usable lithium deposits on earth. And the World Economic Forum, they estimate we need about 2 million tons by 2030. So there's plenty around to fuel the EV transition. The problem is not all lithium deposits are created equal. Some have higher levels of contaminants, which are mostly other metals that need to be removed. And then there's others that are contained in brines. And depending on where that brine is, like in a very humid area, it makes the cost of extraction that much more expensive. And so as far as being a problem for the industry, it's not, but there are going to be some things coming along. And the industry, the battery industry really is in its infancy still um, for EVs. And one thing that often gets overlooked, one of the, when we talk about problems as um, transportation transitions to electric and batteries is labor, especially in the US, there really aren't enough people to staff up all these new battery factories that are coming and all, and even the mining projects, the US doesn't make miners, right? That's not something we send kids to college for anymore. You know, we can't, um, so they're going to need a lot. We can't properly staff Tim Hortons. Uh, <laughs> so the, idea that, the idea that there's all these unemployed miners and battery Right, just waiting around. Yeah. The workers are just waiting around, waiting for their number to be called is uh, is is not not practical. I have no idea because it's not my area. Like, how long would it take for a mine and that lithium to be to be operational, and then for that uh, to be processable? Sure. Yeah. So that takes. For a greenfield mine, you know, brand new from discovery to production, you're talking over 10 years, 10 to 15 years before you see that stuff coming out of the ground. 
And a lot of that has to do with, um, especially in the U.S. again, um, a lot of the rules and regulations around getting permitting is of it. It really takes a long time. So if you want to to um, have these mines operational by you know mid decade, you know they really need to go into the ground. Five, you know you really need to start that process five years ago. And then you know 2030, you you start you have to start now. And where if you want most, this by 2030? Go ahead. Yeah, where is most of the lithium now? Where we know where it is, the process yeah. is already there. It, right. A lot of it is in China. Yes. So not exactly. A lot of the processing is in China, but most of the mining comes out of Australia. And out of South America, an area called the uh, Lithium Triangle, which is Chile, Argentina, and Bolivia. Chile has the most productive um, uh, lithium mines in the world, Australia also. And China is growing rapidly in that area, but they're maybe number three. So, But as far as processing, most of the processing for lithium happens in China or in Chinese-owned uh, companies, which was never a problem before, you know, uh, before the political situation has it changed. So, the, so when the lithium comes out of mines in Australia and Chile, for example, it's going it's going on ships to China often for the actual processing of the lithium that battery companies can then use. So yeah, and lithium is a little different because lithium is so reactive. When it when it comes out of the ground, it's always bound with something, and what it gets transformed into is a, a lithium hydroxide and lithium carbonate. Mm -hmm. Those are the two main forms that are sold around the world. Um, now there are some mines that have processing on site, and then there's processing off site where it's. It has to be for a battery metal material. It has to be really, really pure. It has to be exceptionally exceptional quality. Um, so yeah, and some of the other places that process are Japan and South Korea, um, also big areas of battery processing, and that translates well for the current political situation. We have a free trade agreement with South Korea, and we just made one recently with Japan. So you can expect to see a lot of processing shifting to South Korea and Japan that's bound for the U.S. And we also have predictability with our relationships with, with Japan and South Korea that we don't have with China. We don't have any predictability. Right. There's much less around China. Just, and that, that's mostly just based on the politics. Yeah. You know, if you go back just before COVID, um, there was no issue in using China that much. Um, it wasn't nearly as, as problematic. Right? Companies were able to get what they needed and everyone was kind of happy with it, low costs and all that. And I wanted to come back to one other thing you asked is, where is all the lithium? Do, you, do we know where it all is? No, we don't know where everything is, but most of what we know is probably the best, mm -hmm. right? So everything that's going to come later, it's like, not diminishing returns, but diminishing quality. So you'll see the mines that come later may not be as productive or maybe costlier. And that's the funny thing about mining. As it matures, it actually gets more expensive, not less.
some automakers are becoming a bit worried about lithium supplies in the future as they make all these investments in um, in, in electric vehicles. Um, and they're wary of letting the world markets kind of have their way with pricing indefinitely. So some automakers, uh, Ford, I know one, uh, is investing in the mines themselves. What, what can you tell us about that trend? Yeah, absolutely. It's And it's not the first time the auto industry has had to do this, right? To insulate themselves by vertically integrating. Ford's Rouge plan at one time was the epitome of vertical integration. Back then, Ford had cast its own iron. And at that time, GM was in the same boat. You know, they didn't trust their supply chains and they didn't want to be without. And as we were talking about the geopolitical tensions and the lessons from COVID and its effects on the supply chains, the OEMs are again in that position where they can't risk these disruptions. So you fast forward to today, and the OEMs and even the battery manufacturers are vertically integrating and building redundancies in their supply chains. It's not enough that you have one supplier. Manufacturers need several. Uh, a lot of times, one manufacturer had told me they would order something, and it wouldn't get on the boat if it was coming you know, from overseas. And just missing that one boat puts them behind weeks. And all of a sudden, the way the CEO uh, framed it was they don't make their quarter numbers because of you know this this one <laughs> these one widgets that don't make the boat that day and so they, they they can't risk that and if you talk to people like ian bremer over at eurasia group this is going to be this way for quite a while mr bremer's uh view of the world is it's becoming more politically fractured he calls it a g0 world as in the group of 20 in the united nations moving from group large groups of uh, countries working together to a lot fewer, you know, smaller blocks working together. Mm -hmm. And that's going to keep these supply chains regionalized. Well, I think this uh, semiconductor issue that happened, you know, at the very uh, front end of the pandemic, I, I have to believe has schooled and conditioned the industry and in multiple industries about relying on uh, too slender a supply chain that is regionally very specific because that one chip factory went down um, and it, uh, it it's we're still recovering. Uh, That's right. One chip factory having a fire, I think, and, and having. Right. And some of the manufacturers even started making their own chips. Right? They, they didn't want to rely on whatever chips or. You look at Tesla, who went about upgrading all of their chips so that they could use a more um, economical, and it's more economical from the chip maker's point of view to use these more uh, modern chips. The automakers, the legacy automakers, were using very old chips that none of the chip makers really wanted to make. It wasn't cost effective for them. So you had that tension too, that you have the manufacturer that it's not even in their best interest to make those chips. Mm -hmm. Now, lithium is not uh, the only game in town, and I sense that the industry is also not overly keen to, to rely on uh, lithium 100% for the battery future. I'm reading about work being done with solid-state batteries and sodium-ion batteries, to name two. Explain solid-state batteries to our listeners um, and also maybe enlighten us on the contrast between lithium ion and sodium ion battery. 
Yeah, sure. And so when you talk about lithium being the only game in town, um, you're right. The industry does not want to over rely on it. And you look at companies like Toyota um, before he stepped down, uh, Akio Toyota, he was very adamant and very open saying it's a mistake to just force everyone to batteries. He said, there's a lot of solutions. He wasn't against climate change or reacting to climate change. He was just saying, there's a lot of ways we can do this. And it would be easier to have the freedom to explore those. And so when you say, you know, is lithium the only game in town? It, it kind of is, though, when it comes to batteries. Um, there, it has years of incremental improvements. It has a manufacturing base completely tuned to its production. And the companies are invested in it. So in many ways, it it is the only game in town. And solid state refers to the electrolyte, which is the medium by which the ions go back and forth between the cathodes. And right now, a battery has a, a liquid electrolyte, and they're very reactive. And that's the, um, you know, everyone knows batteries catch on fire. It's because of lithium and the reactiveness of this liquid electrolyte that these fires happen. Moving to a solid state electrolyte would reduce that risk practically to zero. I, I've seen videos of uh, people puncturing batteries, smashing them, you know, doing whatever to folding them, and it doesn't affect them. They, some of them can even continue to run even after being cut, some of the pouch batteries. So this has huge advantages. It also allows for a much more powerful, much more energy-dense anode, um, but it would still be lithium. It's still very much a lithium-based battery but you would be able to use a lot less of it because you could have smaller batteries with higher energy density. So, you know, a smaller battery gives you the same energy output. You'd have a smaller uh, footprint in the car. And the idea is that that's less expensive too. Now, my experience with covering technology over the years is that, I mean, what you just said about solid state batteries sounds great. It sounds uh like wow let's let's get to that place as soon as we can but what is what are the obstacles what are the speed bumps to actually getting to scaled solid state batteries yeah so solid state's a, a funny industry they're perpetually 10 years away from production like hydrogen it, was yeah like exactly like hydrogen that's right it's but i think there's even more problems with batteries because switching to a anytime you switch anything in a battery it completely changes the dynamic in the entire battery so if you say you want to make a solid electrolyte and you're going to ship that out to battery manufacturers and they can just drop their old cathode nano in it it doesn't work um the solid electrolyte an actual solid electrolyte I use the uh, analogy. You ever try to roll up a dish? <laughs> right? I mean, it, it's solid, right? So it cracks. And the same thing was happening with ceramic-based solid electrolytes. You'd get cracks in it. And that was, pro that was obviously problematic. So some of the things they've done to adapt to that is make semi-solid batteries or gels or add... Um, uh, a, a softer material to the ceramic so that it can be rolled up into the cylinders or folded into the prismatics or, you know, however they're going to be manufacturing it. And now solid power, they're one of the companies that is 
they're dedicated to making an actual solid state electrolyte. But their first battery will be a, a, a silicon-based anode with a traditional cathode. So, you know, still very much lithium-based, um, a slightly more powerful anode, though. The, but what everyone wants to get to by using a solid electrolyte is a lithium anode. That would be a much more energy-dense battery, almost zero chance of it catching fire, very safe, much more economical. But scaling up a battery to commercial production is a completely different game. You can make a solid state battery, uh, you know, a coin size, you know, the kind of thing you might put in um, a watch or, um, you know, some other electronic device. But when you're talking about putting it in, you know, a giant traction battery and having all the cells communicate and work together, it's a whole other ball game. Well, thank you, Adam. You know, part of understanding the transition to electrification is understanding the global lithium market. And when we return, Adam is going to share his interview with one of the foremost experts on the global lithium markets. That's Dr. Cameron Perks, who is the principal lithium analyst for Benchmark Mineral Intelligence. The Ward's Auto Podcast is brought to you in part by Ward's Events. Ward's Auto is proud to bring you a series of Autotech events throughout the year and throughout the world. Autotech Detroit 2023 in June in Novi, Michigan brings together 2,500 plus industry peers for the premier B2B networking event. It is also at this show that Ward's Auto celebrates and showcases the Ward's 10 best interiors and UX award winners. Other events in this series include Autotech Europe this November in Germany, focusing on the future of automotive in Europe and Autotech electrification this October in Novi, Michigan, delving into the electrified future of the car. Find out more at wardsauto.informa.com. We are joined now by Dr. Cameron Perks, Principal Lithium Analyst at Benchmark Mineral Intelligence. Tell me about lithium lately. Um, for me, you know, I have a science background, but not geology. And everything I know about the battery metals, I've only really come to know recently, you know, as I started writing more about batteries. And like I said, it was something that I don't think you can ignore and write about the battery space. And what yeah. I've been seeing lately in the news is that, and that's, I should tell you, that's also what I like to do. I'm, I mean, I, I don't forecast, I don't put data together so much as I connect data points. And I like to write about that, how I see those points connect. From BMI's website, lithium is down like 30% across the carbonate, the hydroxide and the metal that you guys cover for yeah. this year. So what's driving that? What's behind that? There's quite a number of factors. Um, so... We always forecasted and expected um, a, a dip in pricing in Q1. Uh, that's a seasonal thing that happens with um, EV demand. Um, it is a nascent industry, so there's not a, a lot of history to go by for lithium prices. But for EV demand, let's say the last five years, there's always been a historical dip. And you've also got winter in China, which can hamper some of the production output from, from some of the brines there. Um, you, you've just got a Lunar New Year. Um, you've got a number of factors that play into that. 
but we did what we didn't probably anticipate was the trajectory um was the true like magnitude of the of the drop but there that's probably because there was a large a large psychological impact there was a big there was an anticipation of a price correction i mean on the way up there was talk about where could prices possibly go um if there's a supply shortage who's to say prices can't go to 100 200 a kilogram why not and it was all hearsay about well the automakers can't can't take it then others would say well the automakers can take it um they can they can stomach this they would pass on the cost to the consumer but there was already this expectation. Um, this was exacerbated as well by then cattle, CATL. Um, they were promoting quite publicly a 200,000 RMB price for lithium uh, through a pass-through mechanism, uh, essentially not really a discount on the lithium, but that's what they were saying. They were saying to their to their buyers, to their- Just for um, certain buyers. Yes, yeah, just for certain buyers. And, and it was really a really minimal volume as well. But I think it was a market signal and it was something really public from them. And it's something that wasn't new either. So in a um, in a similar vein, there were several announced new projects as well and other psychological impacts with no material tons really from these in this year, at least. Right. Um, and then, and then so there's a tendency for China to draw down inventories as prices are falling. So um, really keeping buying to a minimum, volumes really quite quite minimal. There was the ending of subsidies in 2022, which we did know, of course, and we anticipated a price drop. Um, there was also some very heavy internal combustion engine discounts uh, through the first half of this year, uh, which we will continue to see. Um, in China. One deals in China, yep. yep. And that market's actually gone, it's been kind of soft, the uh, ICE vehicle market. Yeah, sure. Um, I but still enough to affect EVs. I think that was just one of the many factors, though. Yeah, not, sure. not obviously not the only one. Um, yeah, just discounting um, big, heavy discounts, like 50% off um, cars. Um, so That's pretty good. <laughs> it, it did, it did. yeah, yeah. It's anecdotal, and it's hard to say, well, this directly impacted this exact amount of percentage, but... Um, it makes sense. This is just what I think the market's consensus is as well. Um, and there was also some interest in sodium ion, and despite it being still limited in scope, really, particularly in this short to medium term, particularly for electric vehicles, and really, so a lot of these factors were psychological almost. Um, Did so CATL set off that psychology with their tell, I guess we'll call it? I don't think that they set it off, but they definitely... Um, yeah, they just added. They added to it. They added added to it quite quite a lot. Um, they sold but this. This is temporary. They had to, in Pilbara. So it's temporary. Yes, we were forecasting a Q1 dip, Q2 to pick up speed, and Q3 and Q4 to for stronger prices. Now that we've seen it ex- more of an extended um, softening, and we're not expecting pricing to really pick up now until Q3. Let's say uh, the second half of the year, and I don't think that there will be enough time to reach the highs that we were talking about last year. We won't see prices exceed those highs, that's for sure. Um, and I think that there is even some yeah uncertainty about whether there will be because there's no subsidy run up in demand at the end of this year that we'll see those those super high prices again. Um, 
So temporary, yeah. Uh, but high prices do solve high prices, and I think that we will, we have seen already many projects being announced, coming online, being built, ramping up faster um, than you anticipated. So mm, there's always um, you know, a physical limit to the speed that you can build something. That's that's for sure. Um, particularly in a jurisdiction like Australia or Canada or the US and permitting, um, resource definition, um, drilling and so on. So there, there is a certain and, and feasibility and an approach for funding and all that due diligence stage that does take a long time. But if then we're talking about, if we're talking about China, it becomes a little bit more uh, gray, a little bit more messy. And so, yeah, we did see, particularly from the China side, there were not really any surprises outside of China um it's yeah focused on that their build out out in zimbabwe was very quick and they're building projects in china very quickly despite high costs um and i think that they know that well prices will stay at least higher than the cost of production and that their market share and supply security is potentially more important and their market share downstream more important yeah, so the surprises were in China. So talking about China, Joe Lowry has been posting that um, China created, the, uh, I'm going to quote it, so I say exactly what he said, creating a false narrative to talk prices down, issuing inaccurate statements about EV demand in China this year, along with statements about more supply in China and additions from Africa than are actually happening with the intent of creating negative price sentiment. Mm-hmm. I'll be honest, I don't understand the market enough to say if Joe's right or wrong, but my first thought is that wouldn't this hurt the Chinese just as much as anyone else to talk prices down? If Joe was right, what's the thinking here? Yeah, I guess the broad brush statement of Chinese may be hard to (laughs) reconcile. There are a lot of different Chinese companies with different interests. Um, It's not, you can't talk about it as if it's a monolithic yeah yeah as much as you want to and as much as you think the chinese government is in control of everything you know you still hear things rumors oh you know the government didn't like what what catl did um or another rumor to say ah oh, they did like it and it was all in line with the government's plan and it's quite hard to there's not that there's not a government owned company but at the same time they they're influenced by it and yeah and then say cattle just sticking with them uh, they've got a downstream interest. So their involvement, say, in that consortium in Bolivia um, is a perfect one for Bolivia because they Bolivia gets to retain the ownership of the, of the deposit and these Chinese companies come along and, and essentially take the, the, the lithium at cost and um, at, at market price. And you've got lithium. So I think these, these companies are more interested in lithium units um, so they're, they're very much interested in how can we get the price down? That, that's definitely, for, for a lot of Chinese companies, how can we get the price of lithium down is is definitely a yeah a, a motivator. They would like- For the mining companies. Yeah, from because they're buying a lot of feedstock from Australia. They're, they're having to buy lithium from South America. So, and they're really having to pay a lot for, for the feedstock. Um, so this is the processors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's converters oh, okay. in China. 
converters in China, but also then therefore they have to make a margin. So then they sell that chemical to the uh, cathode makers who are paying a, a high price. So right. yeah, they've, they've got a very much an interest. And I think the government overall, like China as a, as a, as a whole would be more interested in electric vehicle dominance, technological dominance, battery dominance, cell um, technology, um, energy storage. That makes a lot more sense to me than them wanting to just be dominant in lithium mining. Um, but there are, of course, Chinese companies out there that are now involved with lithium mining and 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 going upstream to secure lithium. But they're they're making deals too that are not necessarily, at the time at least, financially motivated in in every way. They it is downstream financially motivated, but they're not interested always in making a profit from their lithium. It's just securing supply for them. You had brought up sodium earlier. I wanted to come back to that. I've written about it a couple of times, and it never seems like it could really go far. I, I never thought it would. I, I thought it had a long way to go before it was really a contender for LFP replacement. But one thing I always imagined in talking about, like maybe you know, mid-decade, a lithium shortage happens. Sodium might be a really nice bridge if you can mix it in the pack the way CATL. They seem to be planning. Do you have any thoughts on that? Is that feasible? Is sodium not viable? Yeah, yeah. Uh, sodium ion. It's currently being. Yeah, it's a hot topic. Um, the, but the but the supply chain really needs to be developed for it to be you know fully utilized. I don't think that it's there yet. I mean, if we're talking short term impact, there is none. Um, there's it's just theoretical, psychological. It's. Uh, but but medium to long term, yeah, uh, sodium ion will have a place in the market and will replace lithium ion batteries in, for example, um, stationary storage. Sure. Uh, where I think that it, the the there's not so much yeah of a need for the energy density required in an EV. Uh, I think the energy density to potentially compete completely with LFP in some EV models. Well, it, there will be need to be some some improvements um, in the China market is a, se- a separate issue almost, um, and it feels like it will happen in the medium to longer term. The Hina announcement, HINA, the the uh, that battery, they can only really produce. I think they're the only company that can really produce a sodium ion at a commercial scale. Um, but I'd have to, you know, I could check with our battery analyst on that one but and he tells me really that it's at a test phase and the test phase it's not even been submitted to the to the government to to move forward from a test phase um, oh, interesting. and that can take years yeah. to go through this process of actually getting a car on the road years. right so we're talking at least a few years and then maybe you could see sodium and lithium-ion batteries together in the same um car and that's that's definitely people are talking about that, but not uh, in time to act as a bridge if there were a lithium shortage in the next few years. Yeah, yeah. So and also, what we're forecasting is we've got a deficit right now, shortage, and then we're going to see a balance um, with all uh, an influx of projects coming online shortly uh, by the end of next year potentially, and this will be short lived, and it will be something that will bring prices down. And I feel like that in itself will limit the it will again stifle the development of sodium ion um right and and then and then you'll see cyclicity again you'll see prices come back up again and 
so on. So the supply increase, the glut, that's also short-lived. Do you yeah. see a yeah, because- do you see a um um a lack of lithium in the market in the next three to five years? We were forecasting 2026. Then we were uh, to be a balanced market. Then we were forecasting 2025. I think, or maybe it was always 2025, and then it was like quarter to quarter. It was shortened, uh, and now it's t- 2024. Um, say Q4 of 2024, second half of the year. That's what to we're be on forecasting. Balance. A balance. A yeah. balance. Yeah. To be a market where there is enough supply to meet demand and. We're 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 kind of conservative on the demand side. You could use a demand, number, like projection that will never supply will never reach. Right, I think that's useless. Yeah, we look more at battery cell plants that are being built out. We look at cathode plants that are being built, and so we know what realistically a demand number could look like. So I think that our 2024 market balance is a reasonable one. Only because, though, we've got a very strong um, response from China. I think if it was left up to just a Western response and a European and North American and Australian um, response, yeah, we would we would not be there for at least another five, three, four years, maybe. Wow. Um, yeah, it takes much a long slower. time to build a mine. Yeah, much slower. Yeah. And last time the lithium price was really high, there were already a lot of mines ready to go because they were ex tantalum mines or they're already old gold mines or something like that that they could re- they could kind of convert into a lithium mine whereas we don't really have that this this time around got it and do you see that balance sticking we're already out yeah, 24 no. 25 we've got a few years where we where we're forecasting a balance but what is of course what is potentially likely is that when prices come down, demand then moves more into an up uppercase scenario, a scenario where uh, we can afford to make more electric vehicles. And things change within years too. The world's obviously not in a linear. Um, the, the supply chain is not linear and things will change. And I think that then you'll see, again, demand pick up, restocking, opportunistic to, to to buy as much lithium as possible, possibly eminent more MA activity, um, offtakes being entered, um, consolidation from the downstream, buying up on the upstream. And I think that then that will create some market tightness in itself both because you've got a limited availability of spot and uh, yeah, a greater availability, a greater uh, vertical integration. So you'll probably see that play out, but it's really hard to just put that in a model statically. I think that, that that's a, that's something that will just happen dynamically. Um, it will be a short, in a nutshell, the, the balance will not stick for more than say a few years, a few years of balance. So I heard an, an interesting yeah. factoid about the mining industry that, you know, as it gets older, you know, if, you know, lithium mining or whatever metal, it actually gets more expensive because the good stuff gets used up sooner. And what you're left with is the more difficult stuff to reach or the lower grades. Is that happening? Yeah. You know, wh- when do you see that happening in lithium? It, do you see it at all? Or, you know, I, that's a yeah, big... that, that happens. That happens in every commodity without doubt. Um, well, every, every mineral, every, every mining, every, every sector of the mining um, business, every good deposit, had, had, was discovered already 
every let's not, maybe not say let maybe not let's not say every good deposit let's say all the best deposits were already discovered a long time ago whether that might have been for at the time gold mining or tantalum but then they had oh we have this interesting um we have a lot of lithium here but we don't know what to do with it we can sell it to ceramics markets for a bit and then all of a sudden it's we've got um, a need for lithium into batteries so for lithium we're still so early, early days that we are still discovering very good deposits. Maybe not the best, because green bushes is almost like this, a freak. Um, this one particular, um, but we, we're discovering new deposits which are really great quality. You know, um, AVZ, AVZ, for example, it's right up there, right? They're, in terms of grade and size, gold, mineral sands, copper, and so on. The, this story is much more mature and um than that in lithium so we don't see it as pronounced in lithium but you do see it already in lithium in 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 pockets so you've got higher strip ratios um these the deposits that you would never have previously discovered or looked for or found they, they're a little deeper um uh maybe a little lower grade different mineralogy that you wouldn't usually focus on um maybe a, a country that you might not usually um, target so that's starting to happen now in lithium as well it happens africa is a potential source of lithium the african countries yeah absolutely the western sphere is the countries like australia uk us and, and so on they, they operate in a way that makes it somewhat slower to 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 work in africa and we have certain ways of doing things um, that can't be done in any other way. I think it to the disadvantage of, of companies, you really have to know what you're doing. There are a few Western companies in Africa doing a good job, but the Chinese were able to move in to Zimbabwe and build mines really quickly. Yeah. I don't want to keep you too long. I have one last question. Um, I saw your repost of Ahmed Mehdi's LinkedIn post about yeah. lithium prices. You're saying that the prices don't matter as much as the contract prices. Asia's still strong. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Like, wouldn't current prices affect new contracts? Yeah, yeah. Um, contract prices are often set to uh, follow the spot market. So there's a, there's going to be a lag. Yeah, for sure. And that's what you're getting at. There's the lag is, I guess it's narrow. Or... And there's also a ceiling and a floor usually in place as well. So there will be a narrower band where prices can move in 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 many contracts. So there's there's that, um, and that that varies from company to company. And most volume that's outside of China is not on the spot market. Is contract price. Oh. Thank you, Dr. Perks. We look forward to talking with you in the future. Wow, that was great, Adam. Thank you to get that insider look at the lithium market and the insights around what can move the prices of lithium. And it also opened my eyes a bit to the fact that we don't so much need lithium mines opened up in the US probably, though that's probably a good idea. But what we need is to not cede too much power and control to China are the lithium processing plants. Well, that's a wrap on episode two of Ward's Autos podcast. Thank you to Adam Rogazino and Dr. Cameron Perks. Great insights and information about the batteries that are already powering most of our home power tools. 
and phones, and increasingly now our cars, SUVs, and trucks. I'm David Kiley, Senior Content Editor for Ward's Auto. Join us next time for Episode 3, where we will be talking to John McElroy of AutoLine and part of the Ward's family, as well as a leading executive in the auto industry, to talk about how they are managing this transition, preparing and investing for the future while maintaining profits and market share now before the transition to electrification really takes off into full swing.